When I uh, first met Bob Eckhart on the streets of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Tar Heels? Thank you. When I first met him in 1971, he and I had a conversation, and then he said to me, now, he said, if I give you a Bible, will you make me a promise that you'll read it? And I said, okay, I'll make you that promise. And he went to the back of his Econoline van, and he got out a brand new Bible and gave it to me. And this was the first Bible that I had ever held in my hands. It's the first Bible I ever owned. And friends, I still have that Bible today. This is it, the one Bob Eckhart gave me 44 years ago. And it's a precious thing to me, believe me that. But um, I had a problem. And my problem was, when I went home and got ready to read it, I didn't know anything about this thing. I didn't know if it was an, an anthology. I didn't know if it was a collection of poetry. I didn't know if it was a novel that went, you know, introduction, main body, conclusion, anticlimax. I knew nothing about the Bible. And so, as I went to open it, I felt completely lost. I had no idea where to start. I had no idea how all this stuff fit together. And there were all these weird words in there like Deuteronomy and Leviticus and 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians. I'd never heard of these words before. And so I believe there are a lot of people in our world who are just like me in that maybe they go to church once a week and they hear a sermon or they hear a Bible reading but they really don't understand how the Bible fits together globally. And I believe that that hinders not only uh, their ability to get the most out of whatever sermon they're listening to, but it also hinders them in their own personal attempts to study the Bible. And so uh, I decided what we would do here the first four weeks of 2014 is something we've never done before at this church, and that is that we would do a little Bible survey. We would take two weeks in the Old Testament and two weeks in the New Testament and talk about how all this stuff fits together and what it all is because unless you've been to Bible school or been an amazing scholar on your own of the Bible, there's so many of us who really don't get how all of this is interconnected. So, four weeks of what we call Bible survey when we're going to talk about what each book is about we're going to talk about when each book was written, and we're going to talk about how they're all interconnected. So does that sound okay to you? All right. Does that sound good? Okay. Now, before we dig into the Old Testament, I want us first to make sure we understand why that the Bible is divided into an Old Testament and a New Testament. A testament is just a fancy word, my friends, for a covenant or for a legal agreement. And here's what God says, Jeremiah 31 in the Old Testament. He said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a what? A new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I brought them out of Egypt. And by the way, before we go on, let me say that we're going to be producing enhanced CDs 
of all of this with all of the PowerPoint you're going to see today, all the maps you're going to see today in Word doc. So if you can't keep up, don't worry about it. You can buy the CD and sit and study it. Just listen today and take in what I'm going to say. All right? Okay, a new covenant. Now, and this is the covenant, God goes on to say, I will make with them. I will put my law within them and write it on their heart. I will be their God and they will be my people. They shall all know me personally, for I shall forgive their iniquities and their sins I will remember no more. Now the Lord Jesus Christ established this new covenant through his work on the cross and the purpose of the New Testament is to explain to us the details of the new covenant. And we'll talk more about that in the weeks when we get to the New Testament. But remember what the Bible means by the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. The Bible, listen, Jeremiah 31, God says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I brought them out of Egypt. In other words, the Old Testament covenant that we're talking about is the Mosaic covenant that God gave to Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai. What did Jeremiah 31 say? When he brought them out of Egypt. The Old Covenant or the Old Testament includes the uh, rituals of animal sacrifice and how the tabernacle, later the temple, was supposed to operate and about the priests and about the feast of Israel and the festivals of Israel and about the Sabbath and various other offerings and about the kosher, the dietary laws. And when the New Testament came, the Old Testament was superseded and became obsolete. In fact, this is the argument of the entire book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Listen, Hebrews 8 says, He, Jesus, is the mediator of a better testament, covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, the one at Sinai, there would have been no need for a second one. That makes sense, right? Yeah, okay. But... God said, Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. By calling this covenant new, God has declared the first one. What's the next word? Obsolete. Right. So let's summarize. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Mount Sinai covenant was decommissioned was set aside when Jesus inaugurated the New Testament, the New Covenant, through His work on the cross. So, sacrifices, animal offerings, the Sabbath, the dietary laws, all of that was decommissioned when Christ died on the cross. We'll talk more about that. However, don't forget that the 39 books of the Old Testament deal with far more than just these covenant requirements. There are psalms in there. There are stories in there. There are historical events in there. And because all of this is divinely inspired scripture, it's still enormously important 
for our lives. Romans 15:4, the Bible says, For what was written in earlier times, that is in the Old Testament, was written for our learning, that through the encouragement of the Old Testament scriptures, we might have hope. What does this verse say? This verse says that from the Old Testament, we can learn things. From the Old Testament, we can draw encouragement. And from the Old Testament, we can draw hope. And that's why we still study the Old Testament to this day. So, everybody with me? Okay. Now, let's launch into the Old Testament. And I, I got a lot to give you. So, let's get going. As you can see from the chart that we put in your bulletin, and we'll be putting these in every week just in case you forget those over the next four weeks, uh, the Old Testament is divided into three main categories, Old Testament history, Old Testament prophecy, and Old Testament poetical books. And what we want to talk about today are the Old Testament historical books. Next week, we'll take a look at the prophetic books and the poetical book. So here we go. Here we go. When it comes to the historical books of the Old Testament, the Old Testament is divided into four major categories, and I want to talk to each of uh, to you about each of them. Number one, category number one, is the Pentateuch. We are talking about the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all written in 1400 B.C. by Moses. As a matter of fact, this is what the word Pentateuch means. In Greek, penta means what? Five. And tukos means book. The Jewish people call these five books the Torah, meaning the law. And the Pentateuch begins with creation and ends with the solidly established nation of Israel about to enter the promised land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob after they exited from Egypt. So the Pentateuch is sort of like a big funnel, if you will. It begins by talking about all of mankind and it ends by focusing on one specific group of people, the Jewish people. And folks, this is so important for us to understand that the Bible is not meant to be a comprehensive history of all mankind. Let me repeat that. The Bible is not meant to be a comprehensive history of all mankind. There's nothing in the Bible about the Chinese culture or about African cultures or about what was going on with the American Indians. That's not what it was intended for. The Bible is intended to be the history of God's plan of salvation for the human race through the Jewish Messiah. And that's why the Bible starts with the fall of Adam and Eve at creation because that's why we need a plan of salvation, so we understand why we need it. And the Bible ends with the finished work of Jesus on the cross because that's what culminated and sealed God's plan of salvation. And it's also why the primary focus of the Bible is on the Jewish people only because it was through them that the Messiah 
who would institute God's plan of salvation. It was through them that he would come. So do we have that? That's very important we understand. We good? Okay. Now, one other thing to notice about the Pentateuch before we move on is that it's here that we find the details of the old Mosaic Sinai covenant. Everything about the offerings, the feasts, the festivals, uh, the Sabbath, the dietary laws, the operation of the tabernacle, it's all found in these first five books of the Bible, particularly Leviticus and Numbers. All right. Now, That takes us to category number two of the historical books of the Old Testament. And these are called the pre-monarchial historical books. And you're like, the what? Well, pre-monarchial is just a fancy word for the time in Israel before there was a monarch. That is, before there was a king. And we're talking about the books of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Let's talk about those books for just a second. The book of Joshua begins as the Jewish people invade the promised land after the Exodus around 1400 BC and ends with the Jewish people essentially having conquered the promised land and split it up among the tribes. The book of Judges then covers the next 300 years from 1350 to 1050 BC and the The points for the book of Judges, the book of Judges starts after the death of Joshua and it ends with the first king of Israel, King Saul. And during these 300 years, the Bible says, Judges 17, 6, at that time there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And it was a horribly unstable time in the land of Israel. Listen, Judges 2. They forsook the Lord, the Israelites did, and in his anger the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. Then the Lord raised up judges to deliver them, for the Lord felt compassion for them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But as soon as the judge died, the people would turn back to their corrupt ways. And this spiritual seesawing went on for 300 years during the period of the judges. Finally, among the pre-monarchial books, we have the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is like a bright little light in the midst of all of this spiritual darkness telling us the story of a godly man named Boaz and a godly woman named Ruth who got married And the book of Ruth has two purposes. Purpose number one is to let us know that even in this time of deep spiritual darkness during the period of the judges, there were still godly people living in Israel. And purpose number two was to give us information about the lineage of a very important person in God's plan of salvation for the human race, a fellow named David. In fact, we find from the book of Ruth that David was the great-grandson of Boaz and Ruth. So we trace his ancestry here. This brings us to category number three, which is the monarchical historical books. You say, let me guess. That's when Israel had a king. Very good. 
That's exactly right. Um, should we all take a deep breath? All right, ready to go on? All right, here we go. And these are the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, covering basically a 450-year period, almost a 500-year period, between 1050 B.C. and 586 B.C. So let's look at these books real quickly. First, the books of First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles. These books record the 80 years between 1050 and 970 B.C. and basically record the reigns of two kings, King Saul, King David. Also, these books record one of the most massively important events in the Bible, and that is the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David. One of its corollaries was that the Messiah would be a direct descendant of David himself. Listen, 2 Samuel 7, 2, God said to David, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant who will come from your own line and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What's the next word? <clears throat> Forever. Yeah. Who is this person that God's talking about here? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The Messiah. And as I told you a couple weeks ago, it's interesting to note that uh, Jesus was related to David on both sides of his family. His father was a descendant of David through David's son Solomon. And his mother Mary was a descendant of David through David's son Nathan. So God fulfilled this on both sides of the Lord Jesus' parents. With me? Okay. Now, we move on then to the book of First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles, which uh, record the next 385 years up to 586 B.C. And these books begin with the rule of David's son, Solomon, over the kingdom of Israel, and then the split of the kingdom into two separate nations. And the ten northern tribes went and formed their own nation called Israel. And the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, formed their own nation called Judah. And uh, then these books record simultaneously the history of Israel and Judah until both of them are captured. Now let's talk about the northern kingdom first called Israel. The Bible says the northern kingdom had zero good kings in its entire history. Zero. In fact, we know some of these kings, then they were bad. We know Ahab, for example, and what a bad king he was. And we also know about his wife, who was a really bad Oreo. What was her name? Jezebel. Yeah. And uh, uh, they were conquered by the Assyrian Empire by Sargon II in 721 B.C. And we'll show you a picture of the Assyrian Empire. They did not conquer Judah, but they did conquer the northern kingdom. And the Assyrians had a policy where they would commingle people that they conquered. In other words, they would take all the people from Israel that they had just conquered and move them out all over the empire, disperse them. 
And then they would take people from the rest of the empire and import them into what they had just conquered, Israel. And so Israel became a mishmash of a few Jews that were left and all these Gentiles that were imported and they intermarried and produced a group of half-breeds called the Samaritans. The Jews hated them. But we see them at the time of Jesus. And uh, if you remember the story of the good Samaritan. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that was the race of people that came from this intermarrying. So the northern kingdom disappeared. All those ten tribes disappeared. People will often ask me, what tribe are you from? And I'm like, I don't know. Because all the records were lost. And uh, if you talk about the, the lost tribes of Israel, these were they. They were gone. Just, just disappeared. Now the southern kingdom kept going. The kingdom of Judah. They did not fall to the Assyrians. You may remember the great deliverance that God gave them against King Sennacherib under King Hezekiah of Judah. But anyway, they continued also in disobedience to God. Now they did have eight godly kings over 385 years. They had kings like Hezekiah and Jehoshaphat and Asa and Josiah. They had some good kings, but for the most part they were disobedient to God. And finally, God disciplined them and sent a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. And the Babylonian Empire conquered the Assyrian Empire and eventually in 586 took over Jerusalem. They burned the temple to the ground. They destroyed the walls of the city. The Babylonians took virtually all the Jews in Judah captive back to Babylon. And all of this was a punishment for the disobedience and the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel. Now all of this leads us to our final group of historical books and these are called the post-exilic historical books. Why do you think they're called post-exilic? Because they're post, they're after the what? The exile, yeah. They're after the exile where Nebuchadnezzar took everybody to Babylon and by now the Persian Empire has replaced the Babylonian Empire and the Persian kings were much more benevolent with regard to their conquered peoples than others had been. And so they allowed the Jews to return to their land. There were actually three waves in which the Jews returned to their land. And these are described to us in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. These are the last historical books. The first wave of return was in 538 B.C. under a fellow named Zerubbabel who rebuilt the temple, although it was a tiny uh, uh, temple compared to the temple of Solomon and uh, much less glory. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Ezra that the old men who had seen the first temple when they saw the rebuilt temple sat and wept because it had so much less glory than the first one. And then comes wave number two of the return, and that's under Ezra, the priest, some 80 years later, who, Ezra did, led a huge spiritual revival among the returnees. And finally, we have Nehemiah, who uh, returned in 445 B.C., who King Artaxerxes of Persia made him the governor of Judah, 
and gave him permission to rebuild the walls of the city. The temple's been rebuilt, but not the walls yet. And we all know the story, I think, of Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. And uh, this ends the true historical books of the Old Testament. We do have the book of Esther telling about the marvelous deliverance that God gave the Jewish people from Haman in the Persian Empire. But that's it. And now, at around 400 B.C., the Bible goes silent. And for the next 400 years, there's no biblical revelation at all. We call this the intertestamental period. Inter meaning what? Between. And testamental meaning the testament. So this is the time between the Old and the New Testament. There's much that went on. We have secular records about all the history happening then. But the Bible is silent for 400 years until we pick up in the New Testament. Okay, now, that is the fastest course in Old Testament survey you will ever get in your life. But did you guys hang in all right? All right, you there? Okay, but it still leaves us with a very important question to ask. And what's our very important question we need to ask? Um, This is the first one of the year, so it's got to be good. So all you guys at Loudoun and all you guys at Prince William and all you guys at Bethesda and around the world on the internet campus and here at Tyson's, are we ready? First one of 2014. One, two, three. Yeah. So what? Well, the so what is what Romans 15, 4 says. It says that all that we've seen from the Old Testament today is full of instruction and encouragement and hope for us as followers of Christ. So let's just pick one of the things that we could pick from all that we've seen to bring hope and encouragement to our life today. And that is the faithfulness that God showed to the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament in spite of their repeated unfaithfulness to Him. Listen to what God said about the Jewish people. And he said this to them when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for 400 years. He said this to them at Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy 7. It says, For the Lord your God chose you out of all the peoples on the earth to be a people for his own possession. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples of the earth. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and was, what's the next word? Faithful to the oath he swore to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is the, what? Say it. The faithful God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness to the thousandth generation. Friends, and even after the Jewish people provoked God to anger again and again and again in the promised land, even after he had to discipline them by sending Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to conquer them and take them into exile, he still remained faithful to them in the exile 
in the captivity. Their temple was destroyed. Their city was destroyed. But God remained faithful. Listen to what Psalm 137 says. It says, By the rivers of Babylon, while we were in exile and our whole world has fallen apart, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, the promised land. For there in Babylon, our captors demanded that we sing songs of joy for them. They said, sing us the songs of Zion. How, the psalmist said, can we sing the Lord's songs while in a foreign land? Ah, why were they in the foreign land? Because of their repeated unfaithfulness to God, right? But you know what? It didn't end there. No, praise the Lord. Listen to Psalm 126. It says, when the Lord, what's the next two words? What are the words? Brought back the captives to Zion under Zerubbabel, under Ezra, under Nehemiah. We were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. And what did we sing? We sang, the Lord has done great things for us for which we are glad. Did God remain faithful to them? Yes, He did. And you know, it doesn't stop there. When the Jewish people rejected their Messiah and God again disciplined and dispersed them throughout the world, once again, He remained faithful to the promises He had made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David. And that's why today the Jewish people are back in their land. And I want to tell you something. They are back there now to stay till Jesus returns. Amen? They're not going anywhere. They're there to stay. Uh, can I get a hoo or a clap or something? Yeah. God remained faithful. Now, Romans 15, 4 says, these things were written for our learning, for our encouragement, and for our hope. So what are we supposed to learn from all of this? Well, we're supposed to learn what 2 Timothy 2, 13 says, and that is even when we are faithless, even if we are faithless, God remains faithful. He cannot deny who he is. And who is he? Well, we just read it. Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says he is the faithful God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness to the thousandth generation. He is the God who kept his promises, who kept on forgiving Israel and kept on restoring Israel and kept on keeping his promises to Israel in spite of their unfaithfulness. And, and the Bible says he did this for one reason. And that is it's because of his character. It's because of who he is. When he makes a promise, he cannot break it, no matter what we do. Now, I love this about God. I love the fact the Bible doesn't say that God did everything he did because he loved the Jewish people. And that was the total reason. You know why? Because if God loves you, he can always stop loving you. Huh? That isn't why he did it. He did it because his character is faithful. 
And if the reason God keeps his promises is because of his character, well, that's different because God can't change his character. God's character always has to remain the same. Do we understand? Do we get that? Do we get that? Good. And I got to tell you, man, I need a God like this desperately because I'm always doing unfaithful things. I'm always thinking unfaithful things. I'm always saying unfaithful things. And so are you. It's not that we mean to. It's not that we try to. It's just that we're hopelessly flawed. And we're hopelessly sinful. Down to the deepest core of our being. When I came to Christ 44 years ago, I knew I was sinful. But as I've gotten older... And as I've gone deeper in my faith, I've become more and more aware every year how horribly flawed and sinful I really am. It's beyond comprehension how flawed I am. And that's why I'm so glad to have a God who remains faithful to me even when I don't remain faithful to Him. And this is why you should be glad to have a God that remains faithful to you if you're a follower of Christ, even when you don't remain faithful to Him. Folks, if we didn't have a God like this, we would be in big trouble. Amen? And let me tell you something. As a follower of Christ, don't ever forget that the reason that you're going to heaven is not because you remain faithful to God. It's because God is going to remain faithful to you. And the reason that God answers our prayers is because why? God remains faithful to us. And the reason our needs are met here on earth is because God remains faithful to us. And the reason that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me All the days of my life, Psalm 23, is why? Because what? God remains what? Faithful to us. Wow. And you know the beauty is He always will. Because He always must. Because He cannot deny Himself. And you see, friends, let me say in closing, this is what was wrong with the Old Covenant. This is what was wrong with the Old Testament. This is why it had to be superseded. This is why it had to be decommissioned. Because it was based on our human effort. It was based on our human faithfulness. It was based on our human uh, achievement. And our human uh, loyalty to God. And we, we couldn't possibly satisfy it. It was a death sentence, the Old Covenant. It was meant, Galatians 4 says, to teach us how sinful we are. To teach us that we needed plan B. To teach us we couldn't possibly get to heaven this way. And then once we realized that, God sent along plan B, which was the Lord Jesus Christ, where the faithfulness was not ours that made this work. The faithfulness was God's that made this work. Do you follow me? you follow me? Now that we've got the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't, we, don't, we don't need the Old Testament. It did its job. 
It got us to understand how deficient we were and to come to Christ. Its job is done, which is why God decommissioned it. Does that make sense to you? Does that make sense to you? Okay, good. Now, if all of this as kind of a New Year's so what doesn't encourage you, then I don't know what will. If it doesn't encourage you every day to go out of your house and know that the reason God is going to keep His promises to you this day is not because you are always going to keep your promises to Him, but because He keeps His Word no matter what you and I do. He must. And Hebrews 6 says this fact that God always keeps His promises and cannot lie. We have this as an anchor for the soul. Wow, what a beautiful picture. An anchor for our soul that never moves. Man, if that don't encourage you, I don't know what will. It encourages me, I'll tell you what. And it gives me hope for this coming year that I don't have to be perfect because I can't be perfect. Hey, but I got a perfect Savior, huh? And my perfect Savior is going to take care of what needs to be taken care of. Thank God for the Old Testament doing its job today, encouraging us, giving us hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege of studying your word today. And thank you for your character, which cannot change. Thank you that we can depend on your character at all times with no doubt in our mind that we'll ever find you to be different than you were the day before, the year before, the millennium before, it won't happen. And as you reveal yourself in the Word of God to us and teach us your character, Lord, teach us also that we can put our entire weight on your character without any fear that we will ever be put to shame. So use your Word to lift our spirits today And give us hope. This is not an excuse for us to be unfaithful. But Lord, just a wonderful confirmation that even when we try as hard as we can and fall short, that we can still count on you to do what you say. And that's wonderful. So encourage our hearts with this great truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And what did God's people say? Amen. Amen.